Welcome to 2024 and welcome to the first episode of Climate of Change for 2024. And my God, 2023 was just a crazy year and it feels like it's just continuing and it's not stopping. Well, time never stops. Life goes on. We are still here. We still have to deal with the problems. And so this podcast is a place where voices from every different country and corner of the globe unite and come together to discuss arguably our planet's most pressing challenge that at least humanity has ever faced. So if you are new to our podcast this year, I just wanted to take a few minutes to describe what the podcast is about. But if you are familiar with our format, then you can skip ahead to the roughly six minute mark for the interview. An amazing interview with Essen from Guyana. I really enjoyed my conversation with him and listening to his explanation on how sensitive to climate change Guyana is and the impact that climate change is having on agriculture in Guyana. We are very lucky to have him with us today, so thank you, Essen. And if you don't want to listen to the interview, then you can also skip to the 23rd minute mark for the recap of 2023. However, I would recommend that you listen to the interview because it's probably the best part of the whole podcast today. Normally, the time during the podcast, which for this episode, we're going to do a recap. Normally, that would be the time when we reflect on the news for the previous four weeks or three weeks or two weeks or however many weeks it's been since the previous episode and we do tend to vary when we release the episodes between every two and four weeks and that just depends on our own availability to actually make the podcast and also to conduct interviews and how many interviews we have available and so that's the reason why it's not necessarily always going to be every you know x number of weeks so there may be a bit of fluctuation in the release of episodes so i hope you can be a bit uh, tolerant of that but we're planning roughly every two to four weeks to release an episode and our episodes will be made of three sections there'll be an interview at the start then there'll be a recap of the news since the previous episode and we're going to have a short section at the end which is a new section that we're going to try out which we're calling just a reflection um, which is a type of way to just sort of listen and process how we feel about climate change if you're particularly fond of meditating then you might like to treat it as a proper meditation i don't like to treat it as a meditation i just treat it as a chance for me to sort of sit down chill and just breathe for a few seconds which i find to be really good for me personally but you can treat it however you want to treat it you don't even have to listen to it if that's not your thing, it's fine. But a lot of our listeners and the feedback that we're getting from people is that at least some people are saying they feel increasingly anxious and hopeless about climate change. And so we're introducing a new segment to sort of just acknowledge those feelings and try to let go of them without ignoring the significance of climate change. So we're trying that new segment this year. We'll see how it goes. And if people like it, then we'll keep it. And if not, then we'll get rid of it. So it all depends on you. So the goal of the podcast is simple, but essential. It's to create a space where many different voices and experiences and views on climate change can be heard and appreciated. So by views, I don't mean we're going to start advocating for climate denialism. If you want to pretend like climate change isn't real, then this is not the podcast for you. But I think that more than 99% of the world believes in climate change and is experiencing the impact of it right now. So we believe that understanding requires listening to everyone. 
And that's the reason why we start off with an interview to try and get different perspectives. And we typically listen to all types of people. We listen to students who are on the streets protesting or at school just starting to learn about these issues through to the experts who have been studying them for years and everyone in between, including just the everyday person who doesn't work or research or study these issues, but just has their own unique perspective. But in this season, we are focusing a bit more on students trying to tap into their fresh perspectives and ideas. And we've tried to reach out to several um, postgraduate and doctoral students and researchers to share their perspective of climate change. So that's mostly the type of people that we'll be interviewing this year. So we hope that you enjoy the perspective and the expertise that they bring. Generally, the podcast is open to anyone and we're here to learn and share. We're not here to preach. So whether you're deeply involved in the research or the activism or you're just starting to understand or we're trying to process what climate change means for our world and means for you as an individual or for your community, it's an open invitation for you to join us. You could tune in, you can subscribe on whatever platform you prefer. And if you're feeling inspired, you can reach out to us for an interview or drop us a question or comment through our website, which is climateofchange.net. And we'd be really excited to read your thoughts on air or answer your questions on air or even interview you. So even though our Climate of Change is a podcast and we go through the news and we talk to people that may be considered experts, it's also a conversation and we're all part of that conversation. So I hope that we can navigate our hopes, concerns and actions for our world together and we hope that you can join us and make sense of climate change together good afternoon essen thank you so much for joining us how are you and how is it going in guyana today it's very hot very hot good afternoon to you we have been in a prolonged dry spell for quite some time now we had a below average rainfall in the primary i believe primary rainy season i believe now we're in the secondary rainy season you know we were supposed to have some rain from mid-november all the way to the end of january we barely had any rain and it's excessively dry well it sounds like extreme weather is happening everywhere and nowhere on the planet is immune but before we get into what is going on in guyana in regards to the climate and your research I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself, who you are and where you're from, and why did you get into this field of research and work? Okay, yeah, well, uh, well, my name is Isan, full name, Isan Ayeni Hamer. The names are traditional, apart from my surname, which is English. My first and second name are uh, Nigerian names. Uh, I need to thank my mom for that. <laughs> but I'm Guyanese. 100% Guyanese. I was born in Georgetown, Guyana. Um, I grew up in Guyana. I attended uh, high school in Guyana, and then I decided to pursue my tertiary education. And um, for some strange reason, I, I always was intrigued by math and physics and sciences. So I ended up doing a bachelor's of science in physics in Cuba via a scholarship. Oh, nice. Congratulations on getting the scholarship. Oh, thank you. It was quite the experience. Then I then I went on to do a Master's of Science in Climate um, 
in uh, applied meteorology with climate and management at the University of Reading in the UK. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. I've, I've been in school a long time. Still in school. I'm now a PhD student. Oh, you're clearly very passionate about this field. Passionate about it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm currently a PhD student as well as a lecturer uh, and researcher at the University of Guyana. Wow. You are very busy. Yeah. Very, very, very busy within the, the Faculty of Earth and Environmental Sciences. Uh, and um, most of your listeners might not have heard of the University of Guyana, but um, I can speak very highly of the faculty that I represent, which is Earth and Environmental Sciences. Uh, we, we, our work has touched, uh, I can say almost all corners of the globe. Um, we, we have done collaborative work with SEAT, uh, uh, in Colombia, NASA, the NASA, yeah, yeah, uh, Severe Amazonia. So the yeah, we're doing a lot of work in the Faculty of Arts and Environmental Sciences at the University of Ghana. We have uh, a lot of um, collaborative efforts that are ongoing with fellow researchers from all parts of the globe. Um, we have esteemed uh, staff personnel uh, that have published in um, very highly accredited academic and scientific journals. Yeah, uh, so uh, I I ended up in this field due to my curiosity, my liking, passion. Um, I've always been geared towards the sciences since I was a child. So naturally, I just gravitated towards this field before I worked at uni before I was at the University of Guyana as a lecturer and researcher. I worked at the local meteorological office here right right here in Guyana. I was um an engineer there and then I was promoted to a specialist meteorologist and then I later went on to be the deputy chief of the office there. Uh, I also worked in the office of the president here in Guyana. Oh wow that's climatologist incredible. yeah within the Office of Climate Change. So my, my my background in the sciences of climate change, meteorology, I, I have a lot of experience under my belt. Of course, I would not say that I know it all. Every day I learn something new, you know. Uh, weather and climate is, it's it's so dynamic that every day you, there's something to discover. And it's changing so much. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, climate change, climate variability. Uh, it's, it's. I mean, a lot of persons have heard of climate change, uh, but I think more persons are experiencing the harsh realities of climate change. If I can contribute to the pool of knowledge somehow that can craft uh, adaptation measures, mitigation measures that can save lives, save property. I, you know, I, I guess it's my long-term goal to do so. Well, thank you so much for sharing part of your story. Um, it's very impressive and it's clearly a lifelong passion for you and it's given you a lot of experience. And thank you for contributing to solving the issues. I wonder if you could now tell us about your current research and where it's going. Okay, so uh, thank you. Thank you for the kind compliments. I really appreciate it as well. You know, these compliments are very encouraging. Yeah, we certainly need more encouragement <laughs> in life, don't we? My current uh, research, I 
as I mentioned, I'm a PhD student as well at the University of Ghana, reading for a PhD in biodiversity. I'm looking at the effects of uh, climate change, basically, uh, on coastal agroecological zones. I'm looking at how climate change has affected uh, coastal zones, the livelihood of smallholder farmers along coastal zones. And um, I've been doing a lot of quantitative as well as qualitative analysis to express my findings. The work that I've been looking at, basically, I use a lot of um, remote sensing data as well due to opportunities that I had received via collaborations with NASA as well as Severa Amazonia on, on how to access satellite information. I, I've been doing um, change detection analysis. I've been looking at how climate variability has been affecting the vegetative health along coastal zones, comparing different time periods. For example, a period between an El Nino in 2015 and a La Nina in 2021, and I was able to do some change detection looking at various vegetative indices. So my objectives basically, as I explained earlier, was to evaluate the coastal effects on agroecological zones due to climate change. In terms of the results you've been finding, I was reading in your research that there's been a small decrease in vegetation cover in these agricultural zones in Guyana. How do you expect this to go in the future? Based, based on the, the empirical evidence that was analyzed and that I'm continuously analyzing, I think that if left unchecked, most definitely things are going to get worse. Uh, most definitely. The main focus of my, uh, or the main area, my, my area of interest basically are coastal zones. And um, apart apart from atmospheric, harsh atmospheric conditions due to climate variability like El Nino, which we're experiencing right now, and La Nina, there's also, for example, here, right here in Guyana, the most imminent threat is sea level rise. So what proportion of the coast in Guyana is vulnerable or under the sea level? Firstly, the entire coast of Guyana is, is below sea level. Wow, okay. Yeah. The entire coast of Guyana's on the seabed. Is this? Yeah. That's very scary. It's very scary. And um, uh, one, one fact that I was able to extract from the academic literature uh, that, I, that I read um, is that the tight gauge data between a certain decade, I can't recall at the moment, indicated that the sea level rise in Guyana was about five to eight times faster than the global average. So that is our most imminent threat right now, which is sea level rise. That's incredible. And I think that's something that people are probably not aware of. I think sea level rise for most people around the world, it's probably been quite gradual that over the years they notice, yeah, it's happening, but in any individual year, it might not necessarily be as noticeable, but for somewhere especially sensitive, such as Guyana, especially if there's a storm or heavy rainfall or flooding along the coast, I assume that would be quite impactful. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah we're very susceptible to sea level rise. I mean, if there, if there are heavy precipitation events and there, there's a spring tide, uh, you, you know, fortunately for Guyana, we are not in the 
North Atlantic hurricane belt. So we do not experience hurricanes. Um, but you know, we don't know what we don't know the future. Thank God, right? We're grateful for that, but thank God. But we don't know the future, right? And um, if we normally we normally during the rainy seasons, we would have heavy precipitation events. And um, our drainage system cannot uh, mitigate flooding unless the tides are low. We cannot pump water off of the land unless the tides are low. You know? Um, I know it's early days in your research and your PhD, but in terms of solutions, and I'm thinking about the farmers in these coastal areas, what are some of the mitigation strategies available, or do we simply not have the tools in place to address these issues? The agriculture sector here in Guyana has always been a priority sector. The government of the day, as well as the previous one and the one before, has always placed a high degree of emphasis on, on food security and um, protecting the livelihood of agriculturists in Guyana because uh, a lot of persons are employed in the agriculture sector and um, the, agri- the agriculture sector is, is somewhat of a backbone for the Guyanese economy. Uh, so a lot of prudent initiatives were taken in the past. For example, canals were built, uh, pumps were installed in st- strategic locations, etc. But there's still a lot more to be done and this is these are the, the gaps that I hope to address because it, it's, you know, it's not perfect, but uh, with research, with empirical evidence, perhaps we can attain something close to perfection. And I feel like that's part of your role in providing that expertise to guide the way and help policymakers and private industry make the right choices for the future. Do you think the responsibility is more on the government or more on private industry in Guyana, or is it really a combination of both working together? Uh, it, it's 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 a very interesting question because here in Guyana, the industry somewhat is very much bolstered by or supported rather by the government um, because it is a priority sector. The responsibility falls on both government and private sector, in my opinion, in my professional opinion. Because a lot of the farmers are private, well, most farmers, farmers, I don't think farmers work for the government here in Guyana, but I think, um, for example, the sugar industry, it's not privatized. And I think the sugar industry here in, in Guyana, it's the sector that employs the most persons. There's no other entity that employs more individuals than the sugar industry. It's, it's somewhat of a social entity as well, because if that industry is not protected by government, then there's tremendous loss of livelihood, which would definitely devastate communities. The other branches, rice, cash crop farming, etc. these are private farmers. And of course, they're government initiatives that are established to assist these farmers to get their produce uh, to various markets, etc. So there is, it's it's a collaborative responsibility there. The responsibility falls on both government and the private sector to ensure that um, there's you know prudent adaptation strategies that are basically you know employed in the sector to basically protect it.
So it's a shared responsibility. Does climate change have a day-to-day impact on lives and livelihood in Guyana, especially right now when it seems to be getting so much worse? Well, definitely for the past year or two, there has been a surge in in prices in terms of the agricultural commodities on the market. So, so persons are very, very cognizant of the detrimental effects of climate change and the economy and food security because uh, the Governments, thankfully, have been stepping in all the way to caution the effects of climate change on on food prices. But we've been seeing it. We've been seeing it. In some cases, prices quadrupled. You know, and it's just the start. It's just the start yeah. of climate change. It's just the start. It's just the start. And food prices are are compared to a decade ago astronomical when you take a walk in the marketplaces and stuff like that. So, and persons are very well. Uh, aware that this is a consequence of changing climate. How is climate change impacting the local farmers in terms of the way that they undertake their farming or especially traditional farmers? How does that impact them in terms of the way that they rely on their traditional practices and knowledge? Guyana is a small country, about 80 so 90% of us Guyanese reside along this thin coastal strip that's below sea level. Yeah, so we're very exposed. We're very exposed. And, uh, you know, the capital, Georgetown, is also on the coast. We're the, the largest population density is located. Um, so I think the information to reach the ears and household corners here in Guyana, it doesn't take that long. Agriculture has always been a tradition, so to speak, for Guyanese. And being a tradition, most practitioners would have depended on traditional knowledge. Yeah, and then and then suddenly you notice that okay, it's it's normally it starts raining in May, and then there's no rain. Why is there no rain? And they start asking questions. And of course, because because it's such a tradition, because so many people practice agriculture, because so many people depend on it, persons that are responsible for disseminating information can now say, okay, there's this phenomenon known as El Nino, and we're now experiencing El Nino. And because of that, you might see a prolonged dry spell, which might lead to the migration of pests and disease uh, in your crops and stuff like that. So persons are becoming aware of it because it's in their personal interest. Well, thank you so much, Essen, for taking part and interviewing with me. I really appreciate your time and effort in addressing climate change without people such as yourself guiding the way through the problems and enhancing the body of knowledge about climate change. We would be completely lost. So thank you so much. We wish you all the best in the future. We wish the best for Guyana, and we would love to have you back in the future. Uh, You're most welcome, Ben, and I'd be delighted to return on your podcast to share the wonderful things that the University of Guyana is engaged in and currently uh, undertaking, and as well as to uh, be an ambassador to my country with respect to these issues. Today, the World Meteorological Organization and the European Commission's Copernicus Climate Change Service are releasing official data that confirms that July 2023 
is said to be the hottest months ever recorded in human history. The consequences are clear and they are tragic. Children swept away by monsoon rains, families running from the flames, workers collapsing in scorching heat. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. So the big headline from 2023 was that not only was the northern summer the hottest northern summer ever, but 2023 was the warmest year on record for the entire planet on average, and likely the warmest year in the past 100,000 years. The reason why this is so alarming is that not only did the temperature anomalies indicate an acceleration in global warming, but it's also a level of temperature that modern humans and civilized society has never had to deal with before. So climate scientists are alarmed that these off-the-charts records may indicate that humanity has finally broken the climate. Scientists have also warned that if greenhouse gas emissions continue at the current pace, that these hotter-than-normal temperatures could soon become the new normal, and that dramatic climate action will be needed to curtail crazy extreme weather that we've been seeing, including the heat waves, the wildfires and the floods, which are just the tip of the iceberg, according to leading climate scientists. The United Nations this year warned that the world is facing a hellish three degrees of climate heating by the end of this century, with a current temperature rise of 1.4 degrees Celsius to date. So we are very concerned, and if there was ever a wake-up call or time to take it seriously, well, we are way beyond that. Wave in Japan, major flooding in Australia, and a deadly avalanche in Northern Italy. Could be a combination of so in terms of the extreme weather events for 2023, studies conducted found a strong correlation between the intensity of extreme weather events and global temperatures, indicating more frequent and severe events as the planet warms. This includes heat waves, which were experienced all across the globe. Media attention was given to heat waves in the United States, Europe and China, as well as South and Southeast Asia. We know that heat waves are becoming more frequent and intense due to climate change, and this increases the risk of death and other heat-related health issues. Heat waves are getting so intense that research is now showing that in urban environments, the impact of heat is actually deforming structures and buildings. A fan attending a Taylor Swift concert in Brazil died because the heat stress was so severe, and coastal Iran experienced a staggering 70 degrees Celsius heat index, which incorporates the absolute air temperature and the humidity, and this underscores the increasing intensity of heat waves and their dire implications for human health, economic productivity, and ecosystems. So, the heat is getting very real, and we are all feeling it, and heat-related deaths could increase by fivefold by the middle of the 21st century, according to a report co-authored by the World Health Organization. 
Another one of the side effects of increased temperatures are drought and wildfire. For example, drought in Spain and wildfires in France, Canada and Hawaii were particularly disastrous in 2023. Wildland fire experts describe Canada's 2023 fire season as shocking, with blaze burning across an estimated 18.4 million hectares, which was significantly higher than the average 2.5 million hectares that burn in Canada each year. The 2023 wildfire season was the most extensive in Canada's and North America's recorded history, surpassing previous record-breaking fire seasons. In August 2023, wildfires in Hawaii, predominantly on Maui, prompted evacuations and caused widespread damage, killing at least 100 people. And of course, with large increases to wildfires, this means that natural contributions to global CO2 emissions will also increase. Another concerning feedback is from melting permafrost. Because of melting permafrost, a massive landslide occurred on the Fluchthorn Mountain range, showcasing how climate change is destabilizing landscapes. But let's not forget that with melting permafrost comes increased natural methane emissions from permafrost, which again leads to even more extreme increases in temperature. So we are seeing tipping points slowly being triggered all around the world and having a feedback on the climate system. Another of the knock-on effects from increased temperatures is melting glaciers. And one study showed that tens of millions of people are at risk from glacial lake outburst floods, with significant numbers of people at risk in India, Pakistan, Peru and China. Research also showed that the frequency of rapid intensification events of tropical cyclones near coastlines has tripled from 1980 to 2020 and therefore tropical cyclones in the North Atlantic, the number that intensify rapidly within 36 hours has more than doubled. This is problematic because it means that extreme weather will happen more often and way more quickly than we can predict, reducing our ability to prepare for extreme weather events. We also saw for the first time on record, all seven ocean basins experienced a category five cyclone in the same year. Cyclone Freddy became the longest-lived tropical cyclone on record as it brought floods to Madagascar, Mozambique and Malawi, and Storm Daniel in the Mediterranean has been the deadliest storm in a decade, which brought catastrophic flooding to eastern Greece and the Libyan coast, claiming the lives of more than 4,000 people. One study has also found that more than half of all lakes and reservoirs are losing volume, which really highlights the impact of climate change on freshwater resources. And if this trend doesn't reverse, then we will not only have to implement better water resource management plans, but also have to consider the impact that this will have on ecosystems. In 2023, the world's oceans experienced record-breaking temperatures, with devastating effects on marine ecosystems and global weather patterns. About 90% of excess heat from greenhouse gas emissions is absorbed by oceans, which leads to significant marine heat waves. And the rate of ocean warming has doubled since the mid-1990s. So if we can just stop and think about that for a second, you know how we're talking about heat waves and the highest temperatures in over 100,000 years? Well, that's just the land-based temperatures. And actually the land has been absorbing less than 10% of the total excess heat. So imagine how the oceans are feeling right now. They are feeling very, very, very hot. And marine ecosystems are starting to die off quite extensively. 
High temperatures contribute to ocean stratification, affecting heat, oxygen, and carbon exchange between the ocean and the atmosphere. This results in reduced ocean oxygen levels, posing an additional threat to marine life and ecosystems, as well as influencing extreme weather events like storms, droughts, and floods. This also includes in the abyss of the ocean, with studies indicate that abyssal ocean warming will accelerate over the next 30 years. The frequency and severity of surface marine heat waves have doubled since the 1980s and global average sea levels have risen by more than 20 centimeters since the 20th century, and this is likely to accelerate. Scientists also observed record melting at the poles with Antarctica sea ice extent reaching a record low. Since 1997, Antarctica has lost a staggering 7.5 trillion tons of ice, a significant indicator of climate change's impact on the continent. This dramatic loss highlights the urgent need for climate action as Antarctica plays a crucial role in regulating Earth's climate and ocean currents. An unprecedented heatwave hit Antarctica with temperatures 39 degrees Celsius above average, signaling potentially catastrophic impacts on ice sheets, on sea levels, and on global weather patterns. And the polar regions are forecast to experience some of the most extreme increases in temperatures anywhere on the planet. The Arctic experienced its hottest summer on record, affecting ecosystems and causing large declines in snow cover and sea ice extent. The Arctic is warming nearly four times faster than the global average. The Greenland ice sheet, a major contributor to global sea level rise, lost over 150 billion tonnes of ice last year. However, this was mitigated by higher than average snowfall, which helped to limit the loss compared to what otherwise might have been expected. Extreme cold temperatures were also experienced with areas of northern China, experiencing new record low temperatures of less than minus 50 degrees Celsius. So climate change won't just increase overall average global temperatures and lead to heat waves, it will also lead to extreme fluctuations as well as weather whiplash, where we go from floods to droughts and to other weather states very quickly. So extreme weather, as we saw in 2023, is getting worse and is projected to get worse in the future and will threaten not just the environment, but human lives and infrastructure, as well as economic productivity. One study estimated the cost of extreme weather events due to climate change at $143 billion per year. So even if we take the viewpoint of being selfish, climate change is having a massive economic impact and it would be cheaper if we just addressed it directly now rather than further into the future. From devastation in flooded Pakistan to wildfires it's in Europe. It's taken more than 20 years. And melting ice at the poles and beyond. Finally off the climate change is getting worse and the winter to act as a crisis. The text for the treaty That's the message from United Nations scientists. And when these deaths occur, and they're occurring now, but when they occur at much larger scale, I want these so-called people who are very smart to be held to account. It's their heads which should be put up on spikes because they willfully ignored and they didn't care. In terms of green energy and technology, although CO2 emissions hit a record high again in 2023, some people are saying that the world may have hit peak fossil power with a decline to follow. Investments in clean energy matched fossil fuels for the first time, reflecting a significant shift towards sustainable energy solutions worldwide. So, hopefully emissions decline because we really need them to, and urgently. One report stated that about 86% of the renewable capacity added in 2022 had lower costs 
than electricity generated from fossil fuels, signifying a major milestone in the economic viability of green energy. Another report said that rapidly advancing efficiency and affordability of clean technologies is likely to keep global temperature rises to within 2 degrees Celsius. The share of electric vehicles in passenger car sales has more than tripled since 2020, and this exponential growth puts EVs on track to be where they need to be by 2030 to reduce emissions from the transportation sector and keep it compatible with the Paris Agreement. Another report released shows that China, the biggest emitter, is on track to surpass its ambitious 2030 target for solar and wind energy development five years ahead of schedule. This progress was driven by extensive installations under the National Five-Year Plan, with over 30 provinces contributing to a combined capacity of more than 300 gigawatts of wind power and 550 gigawatts of solar power. This is really important because China as a country represents the biggest threat to global progress on climate change, and we really need China to pollute less and rapidly decarbonize, as we hope all countries will. Despite the many positive reports coming out, some analysis is less than hopeful, with one report from the United Nations saying that the fossil fuel industry is likely to expand for decades into the future. The sixth IPCC assessment report was released earlier this year, indicating that future generations' impact depends on current and near-term choices, with current policies leading to higher greenhouse emissions by 2030 than national commitments suggest. Research also showed that six of the nine planetary boundaries that define a safe operating space for humanity have been exceeded. These boundaries are climate change, freshwater change, land system change, biogeochemical flows, biosphere integrity, and novel entities, while ozone depletion, aerosol loading, and ocean acidification are currently within safe limits, although ocean acidification may be exceeded in the near future. To understand what these boundaries mean, please do an internet search and read this fascinating journal article. The United Nations achieved a significant milestone by adopting the landmark High Seas Treaty. This treaty, which was finalised after nearly two decades of negotiations, represents a major step in marine conservation, covering two-thirds of the world's ocean that lie beyond national boundaries. The treaty aims to protect and sustainably manage vital habitats and species in the high seas significantly contributing to the global 30 by 30 target of protecting 30% of the world's land and sea by the end of the decade. The agreement reached at the Conference of the Parties COP28 was seen as signalling the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. It laid the groundwork for a swift, just and equitable transition supported by deep emission cuts and scaled up finance. It also saw progress in areas such as commitments to triple renewable energy capacity and double energy efficiency by 2030. Additionally, the conference initiated the Loss and Damage Fund, although the financial commitments were pretty limited. Despite these advancements, there was a lot of controversy around the choice of host, with Qatar being a major oil and gas producer, and plans to use the negotiations as a way to negotiate new fossil fuel deals. People also raised the need for more substantial actions to deliver climate justice, especially for vulnerable countries facing the brunt of climate change effects. Various outlets said the COP28 initiatives lacked ambition, clarity, coverage, and accountability. Looking to 2024, there is a lot of concern because of the El Nino cycle, which is a natural cycle that leads to extreme weather in some years and more mild weather in other years. And what this means is that the ongoing El Nino event will potentially break the global temperature record in 2024, as well as exceed the 1.5 degree threshold on any single given year for the first time. 
Other things to watch out include whether there's a possibility that global greenhouse gas emissions may peak and start to decline in 2024, though a lot of projections are less optimistic. 2024 is also key for negotiating a new global finance target for climate change, focusing on contributions and allocations with potential innovative finance solutions like taxes on shipping, aviation, and fossil fuels. The loss and damage fund that was agreed earlier could start functioning in 2024, providing support for regions affected by climate-related disasters. However, there is a lack of clarity on the specifics. The effectiveness of just energy transition partnerships will be tested as funding starts flowing in 2024, with a focus on transitioning from coal to cleaner energy sources. The Global Methane Pledge, which aims to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030, and whether there are concrete actions on this is also yet to be seen. The credibility of carbon markets, especially voluntary ones, is also under scrutiny, though there are plans to ensure quality and integrity in carbon offset projects. Efforts to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies are ongoing, with some countries committing to creating an inventory of their subsidies by COP29, which this year will be held in Baku, another fossil fuel producer. At a regional level, some countries are more impactful than others, and we will be keeping our eye on the 2024 political events, including the US election, with a potential clash between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, which some see as being critical for global climate policies. The US is a major polluter and financial powerhouse, and the outcome will significantly influence climate action. Republican control of the Congress could also lead to rollback of environmental regulations, while democratic control could enhance climate action. The Inflation Reduction Act incentives could further reduce US emissions. In the European Union, meanwhile, companies are preparing for the EU's carbon border tax, which is seen as a protectionist measure by some developing countries. The tax aims to incentivize cleaner manufacturing practices. While the US and EU have seen reductions in climate pollution, unfortunately countries such as China and India are experiencing increases. For example, China saw a record growth in clean technologies in 2023, especially solar panel installations, contributing over half of the global total. So whether this continues and whether China's rapid deployment of solar and wind energy could lead to a decrease in its carbon pollution starting in 2024 is yet to be seen, but it's widely hoped by many. Welcome to the reflection. A short few minutes where we can journey through our thoughts and emotions relating to climate change and learning to acknowledge, accept and release them and treat them in a compassionate and productive way, learning to disconnect from our emotions and thoughts when necessary and reconnect with them when it's most advantageous. So if you can, find a comfortable position where you feel at ease. Close your eyes if you want to. And if not, maybe you're in a space where you can't do that. So maybe just try to be calm or don't be moving around too much and just try to focus on yourself and focus on your breath. Take a deep calming breath, inhale slowly and exhale any immediate tension that you feel in your body. Visualize that part of your body where you feel the tension, acknowledge it and just, just kindly invite it to release. And if it doesn't release, that's fine. And if it does, 
except that it's been released. And as you continue to breathe deeply or, or in your own way, just bring some focus to the topic of climate change. It can be a complex and challenging issue and it can often feel overwhelming. You might feel anxious about it, you might feel confused about it, and that's okay. Just acknowledge those feelings. It's okay to be concerned about the past or the future or the present, but just imagine those feelings being contained, bottled up, restricted, and imagine you can breathe them in, recognize that those feelings and emotions exist and imagine that you're breathing them in but with every time you exhale imagine that they're being released and they're just flying away this doesn't mean that we're diminishing their importance or that we're denying their existence instead we are learning to let go of the hold that they have on us if they have a hold on us maybe they don't have a hold on us as you breathe out Imagine releasing a bit of the emotional weight that you carry relating to climate change and replace it with a space for clarity and calm. Reflect on the idea that while climate change is a global challenge, it is also a call to personal action, if that's right for you. Understand that it's normal to question the impact of individual actions in the face of such a big issue. You may feel doubts, you may feel confusion, you may feel like you're powerless. Breathe in those feelings and breathe out, letting go of the emotions that you feel. Letting go of the emotions that you feel, of carrying all of that inside you. Remember that even if we're alone in a moment, in a time, in a particular place that we are still part of a global community and in that sense we are part of a collective effort it's also important to acknowledge the power of acceptance accepting the reality of climate change doesn't mean being passive or pretending it doesn't exist or pretending that it doesn't have substantial impact upon our lives. Instead, it's about acknowledging the situation and understanding our role within it. With each breath that you take, embrace this acceptance. Breathe in reality and breathe out resistance. Now consider the power of individual action, but also collective action and shared responsibility. While individual actions might seem small, together they contribute to significant change. With each inhale that you take, draw in a sense of community and shared purpose. With each exhale, release feelings of isolation and helplessness. As you continue to breathe, start to bring awareness back to your body and the physical sensations. Start to move your fingers and toes, and start to feel grounded and present in the world around you again. Connect with the world around you. And when you're ready, if you have had your eyes closed, then open them. If you've had your eyes open this whole time, then maybe look around a little bit more and try to take in your surroundings. 
try to acknowledge the different colors and shapes of the environment around you. Perhaps the smells or the sounds or the feeling that you experience. Acknowledge the world around you and carry with you, hopefully, a greater sense of peace and acceptance and a renewed perspective on your role in either acknowledging or addressing climate change. It's through acknowledging our emotions and learning to release them that we can move towards constructive action.